the origin story of King Arthur, as, as we all probably know, is about a child who grew up not knowing the true story. He didn't know that his biological parents, who died when he was an infant, were the king and queen. As a child, he was picked on and not expected to do much or have much potential. But along the way, he met a wise, bearded mentor who helped to guide him. And then finally, one day, the truth was revealed. He received the legendary weapon Excalibur, the sword that he pulled out of the rock or the stone. And yet he still felt unworthy and unprepared to carry the weight of his true identity. Orphaned, picked on, unaware of his potential, guided by a magician, legendary weapon and a tortured soul. What other characters or stories or movies sound like that? Like all of them, right? <laughs> At least have, have, have some of those details, especially the experience of tragic loss. Peter Parker lost his parents and, and later his uncle. Hiro Hamada from Big Hero 6. Wanda Maximoff and her brother Pietro. Basically any superhero for the most part. And then there are those characters that almost exactly follow this Arthur legend pattern. Like Harry Potter, whose magical parents die when he's an infant. But one day he discovers the truth, he gets a wand, he meets his Merlin-like bearded mentor in Dumbledore, and yet he can constantly feels unworthy to live into his true identity, right? Or Luke Skywalker, who loses his parents as an infant, is raised by foster parents on Tatooine, the planet with two sons, where he meets his bearded Jedi master, gets a lightsaber, and is a tortured soul who constantly feels unworthy. Why do these stories so often include the same details and the same storylines? I mean, over and over, and it, it doesn't seem like we get sick of it, right? Well, in part, it's because the legend of King Arthur is so well known. So even if we don't immediately notice the connection or we don't immediately notice the pattern, we will intuitively feel a connection. The familiarity is a powerful tool that pulls us in. The familiarity is a, is a powerful tool that makes us feel like we know the character long before we actually get to know the character. And that keeps us moving through the story, right? So the story of Ruth in the Bible that we've been looking at begins with a detail about her that tells us everything we need to know about her. And we immediately assume that we know who she is. She is from the country of Moab, which immediately tells us that she is our villain. <laughs> Nothing good comes from the country of Moab, we assume. So we know who Ruth is. Or do we? Because when she speaks in this story, she, she shatters our expectations about how the story is supposed to go. She speaks and gives voice to the most vulnerable, and she speaks as the voice of God, which throughout the Bible is usually one and the same thing. God is on the side of the outsider. God is on the side of the oppressed. So when Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, has lost everything tragically, her husband, both of her sons, Ruth says to her, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Not even death will separate us. Ruth embodies God's inclusive and faithful love. But... It's going to take a whole lot more than that for, quote-unquote, good God-fearing people to see her as anything other than the villain. 
She's still in great danger. And like so many women, children, and immigrants, she's vulnerable to starvation and to violence. And so in order to survive, she has to go out into the dangerous fields around Bethlehem to pick up the leftover grains so that she can eat, so that she can provide for her mother-in-law. To survive, she has to work all day without rest. And so while she's working in the field, it just so happens that the owner of the field comes by and he asks one of his other workers about her. Who, who is she? And that worker says, she's that woman of great character who's the voice of God in this story and the voice of the most vulnerable. She's the one who shatters my expectations and reveals my own prejudice. Uh, now he doesn't say that, <laughs> obviously. Instead, he says, she's the Moabite from Moab. She's the villain. Who is the villain in this story about the villain? Just in case you didn't notice the many other times before this when I've told you, she's not one of us. So let's see what happens next as we continue reading the story in Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. So Boaz says to Ruth, he, he speaks to her, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean or pick up leftover grain in another field or leave this one, but keep close to the other young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being harvested and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So Ruth has worked all day without rest in the fields, and likely she is thirsty. More than likely, she hasn't had any water because the young men drawing the water need specific instructions from the owner of the field not to harass her, and the owner of the field has just shown up. So either Ruth is really thirsty, or she's already been harassed, or both. As we read this story, we're intended to try to see things from a different perspective, from her perspective. Can we continue to see in the details of the story that the field is not even for Ruth? Continuing verse 10, Then Ruth fell to her knees with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should notice me when I am a foreigner or an outsider? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and, how your, and your native land and, and came to a people that you did not know. You left your father and your mother and your native land and you came to a people you did not know. Now, even though Ruth loses her parents in a way, she isn't following the story of King Arthur because her story comes first, like 2,000 years before King Arthur. But Ruth's story does follow a familiar pattern that no doubt is another attempt by this story to transform our deeply ingrained prejudice and fear. By leaving her country and her family and going to a land that she doesn't know, her story follows the pattern of Sarah and Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, who are told by God to leave your country and your family and go to a land that you do not know. So that through God, so that through them, God might bless everyone, not just some people. 
Now, if, if the main character of this story was, was a man, we might instantly see the connection between, her, between him and, and Abraham. Or, or for those of us who are Christians of, of European descent, if, if this was a white guy with a beard who left his father's house and came to a world that didn't know him so that he could love those people, we might immediately say, oh, this is the Christ figure in this story. Obviously, like we've seen the paintings. We know what Jesus looks like. But because Ruth is a woman, specifically a woman from the Middle East, a woman from a country that, that only produces bad people, apparently, and because Ruth is an outsider, the story has to keep hitting us over the head over and over again with these obvious hints and details. Hello, Ruth is like one of the founders of our faith. Can you see it? Is anyone there? Ruth is like God. In the time of the judges, everything had fallen apart, even their faith. But Ruth, in Ruth, God is starting over. She is the new Sarah or the new Abraham, the new matriarch, if you will, of God's people. And through her, God will bless all people of the earth. But it's still so hard for the people in Bethlehem to see it. It's still so hard for us to see it. So continuing in verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of this bread and dip pieces in the sour wine. And she ate all until she was satisfied, and she even had some left over. And when she got up to glean some more to pick up leftovers, Boaz instructed his young men again, let her glean even among the standing barley and do not bother her. You must also pull out some handfuls from, from, uh, for her from the bundles and leave them for her to glean and, and do not rebuke her. When Ruth was done working at the end of the day, she had enough grain for her and for Naomi, probably for about a week. So things are, are getting a little bit better. She's got some food. That's good. But notice how the social default is still exclusion for her because of all the people who need constant reminding to not harass her and to not reject her or to turn her away from working. Boaz, however, sees her, of all the people, an owner of the field who's responsible for all of these workers, how is it that he sees her? Well, he has this opportunity to notice her first and foremost because of the way that God's generosity is built into society. The idea of gleaning or picking up leftover grain from the field was a law from God that said in Leviticus 19, when you harvest, do not harvest to the very edges of the field or gather the leftovers. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. Ruth is there in the first place because God wants his people to reflect her generosity. 
Ruth is there in the first place because getting the most profit possible out of the land isn't the highest priority. She is there because there is margin. There is room to welcome her in and include those who are so often left out in society. So, how many of you this week left room at the edges of the field as you were driving around in, in your combines? Anyone? Okay, well, how, how about just the concept of margin in general? Is there any space around the edges of our lives? Or are we book solid? Is there any room that might allow us to notice one another, to, to pay attention? Or, or is that just a waste of time? Is there margin in our day? Is there margin in our energy? Is there room in our budget to be generous? So here, here's the question. Are we living life to the fullest? This is like the question that our society wants us to ask. Are we living life to the fullest? Are we living our best life? If we are, then maybe the answer is no. Because maybe full actually means not entirely full. Maybe best means leaving room at the edges for all the unproductive things like rest and healing, leaving room to notice other people, people who society declares are unproductive and unworthy, leaving room to reflect God's inclusive generosity. Is there a margin for God's generosity to be reflected in us? I mean, the good news is, is if we look around, there's actually a lot of literal space in here to welcome people in. But the bigger question, is there room in our spirit? Is there room in our perspective to welcome people in, wherever we might be? Well, unfortunately, the end of the harvest is, is coming. So even though Ruth and Naomi can eat for a week, they're still in great danger because they have to survive all the other weeks of the year. They're still in danger. So the story continues. Next week, we, the, the story turns to the, the, uh, the storytelling pattern of The Bachelorette. <laughs> Oddly enough, if you think I'm wrong, like show up next week or whenever I'm able to come back to this. And uh, yeah, please pray with me. <laughs> Jesus, we pray that you would remind us of your your gracious, generous love for each of us. We pray that you would allow us the courage to, to trust you with our lives enough to, to allow space, to not be productive, to allow margin in our life in various ways so that we might rest, so that we might heal, so that we might be able to pay attention to you and to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.